For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And writer and broadcaster Candice Holdsworth. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the return of the Ramonas, Rishi Sunak's flip-flopping on trans kids and the protests in Peckham. If you haven't already, make sure you not only subscribe to this podcast on whatever channel you listen to it, but if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you subscribe and click the bell, and then you can keep up with all of our great content. So it feels like the Ramonas are back in a big way. There's been a couple of incidents in the past week or so. We've seen uh, a sort of EU flag-waving frenzy at the last night of the proms. There was a very a leading civil servant came out and said he was a Remainer. He admitted that he told all of his colleagues that he voted Remain. And we even had Sir Keir Starmer talking about using the EU as a potential solution for the migrant crisis in the channel. Uh, Tom, does this worry you a bit? Is this a, you know, the wrong direction we're going in potentially? Well, I don't think they've ever really gone away, have they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think what's happened now is that their tails are up. I think there was a kind of period in which they were beaten back, particularly by the 2019 election result. And now I think there's a kind of sense that with the dispatching of Johnson, um, with Keir Starmer riding high in the polls, even to a certain extent with Rishi Sunak rather than mm. someone else in charge of the Tory party, that they're kind of back in the driving seat. They're a bit more cocksure than before. What I find fascinating is that um, since, since Brexit and particularly in the last couple of years, you have had this horrible kind of flowering, like a kind of fungus flowering of sort of all these new sort of Ramona podcasts, um, influencers, yeah. characters, the sort of rest is politics type kind of um, back in a big way. Um, and this has kind of all been built off of a certain narrative, which has been easily propagated because of the fact that um, Johnson has been dispatched and Brexiteers have been a bit demoralised and so on, which is that the country's going to a hell in a handcart that forget Ukraine, forget COVID, the reason for it is because of Brexit. Mm. Even though at the moment that narrative has completely fallen apart for reasons that you've written about on Spites the other week about the fact that this totemic claim of theirs that um, the UK was the one country in the G7 that was still to recover from the pandemic recession despite the fact that those figures have since been revised we actually yeah. recovered in 2021 that that's been kind of blown smithereens they still carry on regardless um, there's a sense in which nothing can really dent their narrative at this point and I think what it really speaks to is the fact that um, they feel not wrongly that they've kind of taken back control a little bit of the certainly of the political class certainly of the initiative and i think it's that's why it's so much important so important that um people who care about pushing back those kind of quite technocratic characters should do so because they think that they've won the argument even though going on what's actually happened they've completely lost it but there you go yeah it's extraordinary because we obviously all remember project fear during the referendum, all these claims that you you know we're all going to be four thousand pounds worse off. Um, there will be an age of austerity to come. There will be um, all kinds of uh, unemployment will rise. You know we none of that was predicted in the wake of a Brexit vote, let alone actually leaving the EU. Now we've had the referendum. 
we've had um we've actually left the eu you know we fully left out of the transition period in december 2020 during the pandemic and none of the things they promised or warned about have actually come to pass there've of course been major economic challenges from covid from the war in ukraine but as you uh, pointed to earlier tom you know this whole narrative that britain is falling behind uniquely mm -hmm. because of brexit the worst performing country in the G7. It's just nonsense. It's just been completely blown away in recent weeks by a revision to GDP that suggested that the economy is 2% larger mm -hmm. uh, than we thought it was. You know, normally when GDP figures get revised, it's like a few point something percentages here and there. This, is, this absolutely blew the Remainer narrative out of the water. And yet, you know, they still don't change their tune. It's simply asserted that Brexit mm -hmm. is a disaster. It's simply asserted that if a bad thing happens, it must have been due to Brexit. And it seems as if the truth doesn't get through. For people who claim that Brexit was won on disinformation, it's quite extraordinary mm -hmm. that they keep peddling this line with no facts to back it up. Yes, I mean, there's been no sort of mutual shift in their position. And it's so true. That was a massive thing, like you wrote about in your article. Initially, um, the, the GDP, GDP figures that we originally had were used to feed a certain narrative mm. that Britain is an economic outlier. But now the data's changed, as it does, it often does, and they haven't acknowledged it. There's been no shift in that position. And that's really important because they predicate so much of their arguments on Brexit being a disaster in the economic sphere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's never really come to pass. I mean, for me personally, Brexit was never really about economics. Mm. I mean, there were many who talked up the big upside of it. It was always more in the realm of sovereignty, political ideas, independence. And I always thought that was very easily achieved. I often did disagree with Brexiteers who always tried to present it as a utopian vision mm. because I thought, well, there could be challenges. You could be adding more friction. That is possible. Mm. But obviously, you know, you have to weigh up balance. What is more important? And for me, the politics were always more important than the economics. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, given the, given the reaction or lack of reaction to the sort of revised GDP figures, it's not really about the economy for Remainers. And I'm not no. sure that it ever has been. That's why it's so wounded them. You know, there have yeah. been all kinds of economic debates over the past a uh, couple of years, couple of decades, you know, austerity, um, there's a debate over that. That didn't wound people in the same way when they felt they lost the argument over that. Really, this was about losing, you know, Brussels, losing rule by technocracy, mm -hmm. essentially. It was their class that took a knock from the Brexit mm -hmm. vote. I, th I think w the economy was important to remain voters. And you see that yeah. in the polls, you know, so in the aftermath of the vote, number one issue for Leavers was the question of sovereignty, democracy, for Remainers, it was concerns about the economy. That kind of makes perfect sense. But for the kind of elite Remainers, the Ramonas, if you will, mm. the influencers that we're talking about, the people who haven't stopped banging on about the vote being the worst thing that ever happened to be in a sliding scale down to the 1930s or something, it's not really been about the economy. That's just the stick with which they yeah. wanted to beat Brexiteers with. Um, and when that's denied to them, they'll just go after something else. It's not even really about the EU either. I mean, mm. I was thinking about this in relation to the proms and that really kind of cringe way in which it's just become a way in which anti-Brexit campaigners hand out the EU flags and wave them in the big finale when usually people would be flying the union flag and so on. You think, what is it you're waving that flag for? Yeah. You didn't own that flag until about five minutes ago. You certainly didn't own one before the <laughs> vote itself. There were no pro-EU demonstrations before the referendum. Mm. No one knew who Giva Hofstadt was. No one ever, you know, painted their face in the blue and yellow. Their supposed love of the European Union 
I think is quite clearly just an expression of their distaste for the people who voted to leave it. You know, they. Yeah. I, you just wonder, what is it that you love so much? You know, is it all the regulations? Do you like the corruption? Do you like the lobbyists? Do you like the, you know, they claim to be internationalists? Do you like these horrendous policies that are battering jobs and exporters in Africa? Do you like them paying North African dictators, you know, and militiamen money to keep migrants away from the Mediterranean? Is this the sort of thing that you like? Like, is it what is it that you actually like so much? I think it comes down to the fact that they know not very much about the European Union they care even less about it it's just the fact that they intuitively and rightly understood it as a kind of check on the democratic wishes of people that in this country that they happen to dislike working class people in particular so I think that's one of the things that this particular not remain voters but this kind yeah. of elite remain a subculture which has popped up mm. um, it's really only defined entirely in the negative which is why their opinions don't change when the data changes because it's never really been about that in first place i mean or, or perhaps they just you know are blown away by the sheer talent um and charisma of ursula von der leyen mm. but maybe not <laughs> candace <laughs> yes i mean i think it's become a form of identity now and i think that's also why there's a lot of grievance associated with it and one thing that you often hear is is that they don't like to be on the losing side i think there is some of that in that right i mean they did not like to lose it was a big shock and i think the, it, you know these are often people who win yeah. And they didn't like that the people who they thought are very unintelligent, remember that horrible phrase from a few years ago, low information mm -hmm. voters were the ones who had, had won the Brexit vote. I mean, it came as a huge shock for them. And I think they, they're still, their they're egos, and I, I really do think this, are still recovering from it yeah. and have never recovered. And the, and the always winning point is, is crucial because it really didn't matter which party would get in, whether it's Labour or Tory, particularly in, in recent years, you know, certainly pre-Brexit, what's the difference between New Labour and, and David Cameron? No, you know, it's not it's yes. not a great chasm. They say they have similar views of the world, as we're discovering from um, all these podcasts that are coming out with mm -hmm. supposedly people uh, on who are, who claim to be political opposites, like Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell or Ed Balls and George Osborne, who actually agree on pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. They're not really men of their time, because we do live in a time of genuine adversarialism and mm. arguing and, you know, trying to figure out where the society is moving. But they will always eschew that, because that's kind of seen as, as beneath them a little bit, you know, sort of slugging it out, fighting it out, yeah. you know, on, doing things on principle. And, and finally, Tom, do you think, you know, have we lost a little bit of the Brexit spirit, I guess? It feels certainly like... Perhaps one reason the Remainers, you know, feel a bit more in charge is that the, the sort of Brexiteers have gone into hiding. Yeah, I think there's always been a bit of an issue with, first of all, that the Remainers continued campaigning almost as soon as the vote was over because they didn't accept the results. So they've kind of continued up that level of momentum. I think particularly the kind of political leaders, the prominent leaders of the Leave campaign were quite complacent. They kind of thought that it would be either a land of milk and honey instantly or that it, they really underestimated the scale of opposition that they would see both from within the political class, from the civil service, as you alluded to in your introduction, all the way up until, of course, the European Union itself. The, mm. the fight that they were picking with um, technocrats of all kinds of different colours was was huge. And I think they weren't necessarily steeled for that particular fight. I think Leave voters in general, there's definitely a sense in which they've been demoralised, been browbeaten by a narrative. They've also been browbeaten by, as we've now come to realise dodgy statistics about yeah. how supposedly terrible the impact of Brexit has been on the economy and being told by everyone and their mother that this is their fault and they're now having to taste the harsh medicine of their own particular decision. Uh, so I think that we've got a work cut out for us in order to kind of make clear that that is complete nonsense and to dislodge that myth which has lodged itself very much in the public 
discussion. But at the same time, I really don't think that this idea that we're back to business as usual, we're back to Ed Balls and George Osborne or various different iterations of those characters dancing gleefully together on the head of a pin. Mm. Those days have not returned. We're in a we're in a bit of a reprieve. We're in a moment in which the populist kind of forces have been beaten back to a certain degree. But the idea that ordinary people have decided that actually the Remainers were right to say they shouldn't have a role in politics. Mm. They were right to say that the status quo isn't good enough. That they were wrong to say that the status quo isn't good enough. That actually have decided that they were wrong. That the political class are a bunch of people who range from hapless to actually quite malevolent there this has not been a kind of case that they've just decided to give up they've just been beaten back by the fact that there's been such a concerted effort to try and frustrate their vote and try to slowly reverse it which is what we're kind of seeing now so i think anyone the complacency is now very much on the remainder side they think they've won yeah <laughs> they think they've returned to kind of prominence but i think they're going to get a shock as soon as as a proper choice is presented to the electorate once again. But I think we are in for a bit more demoralisation yet, sadly. Here at Spiked, we talk a lot about the dangers of big tech. And I'm sure you're well aware that companies like Facebook and Google pose a very serious threat to your privacy by putting all of your private information up for sale online. The good news is that there's a way for you to both reclaim your privacy and keep nosy big tech companies out of your data. And if you've been itching to do just that, I cannot recommend ExpressVPN enough. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why pay for a VPN at all when I can just use one for free? Well, the bottom line is that all VPNs cost you in some way. And while you might pay nothing up front, those free alternatives you might have seen are actually making money by selling your data to advertisers. With ExpressVPN, you just don't need to worry about that. ExpressVPN doesn't log your online activity. They've even developed a unique technology called Trusted Server that stops the VPN from tracking and storing your information. With ExpressVPN, you pay for what you get. And thanks to their new lightweight protocol, ExpressVPN offers faster speeds than ever before. There's no buffering, no pixelated videos. You really don't have to sacrifice your fast broadband speeds to protect your privacy. Also, please don't let my talk of servers and protocols put you off either. ExpressVPN requires no technical skills whatsoever. It is incredibly easy to use. All it takes is clicking one button to connect. If you think your mum, dad, grandma, or even your tech illiterate grandson needs a safe way to stay online, then let them know that ExpressVPN is built for everyone. Why else would Mashable, The Verge, and plenty of other tech magazines rate ExpressVPN the best that you can get? So, to protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust, you can use our link expressvpn.com slash spiked today, and you can get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. So a new school term has recently begun and Rishi Sunak's government has once again failed to produce guidance on how schools should deal with children who say they are transgender. Um, A couple of months ago, the government had actually floated banning social transitioning, which is where a child or anyone else uh, essentially declares themselves to be another gender and everyone goes along with it. The school agrees to change um, that pupil's name and uh, they can wear the opposite uniform. Now the government says, or Rishi Sunak says he's proceeding with just extreme caution. 
Candice, it feels like this is not good enough. I mean, this is a very serious issue that the government keeps wanting to like punt into the long grass. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, schools genuinely need guidance on this. I mean, we can't just rely on on judgment or common sense or, you know, what your individual opinion is. It doesn't work that way anymore. So teachers do need to know, do I actually have to quit my job or do I have to or will I be forced? Will I be compelled to use pronouns, for instance, that I don't want to use? Um, I think that the the essence of social transition is that it's social. It involves everybody. Mm. We need to know what's going to happen. I mean, my position on it, I don't think will surprise anyone. I mean, I don't think it's a neutral act. I don't think it should be happening. I do recognize, however, that, you know, in the interest of liberties, people should be able to pursue things that they genuinely want to pursue. But, you know, parents and teachers need to know. And I just, I feel like at the moment, because just before an election, they're kind of they're avoiding controversy and they're sort of trying to pitch at the center ground, this illusory center ground that they think exists. And, you know, this is actually going to cause a lot of problem for parents who've been campaigning on this for so long and are so disappointed about it. And I guess that's the point is that there's so much going wrong in schools at the moment, mm-hmm. Tom. You know, the, the, what, uh, what is happening without guidance is just crazy with children being socially transitioned behind parents' backs, for instance. And that was one of the things that sparked this. It wasn't the fact that people were concerned about where this might go. There were revelations, as you say, of people of young children being socially transitioned behind their parents' backs. You add to that the context of the fact that we have been seeing kind of PSHE lessons or things of that nature mm. or outside organisations invited into schools to talk about the gender issue and therefore to essentially propagandise a particular view on the idea that um, we have this thing called a gender identity, kind of a bit like a soul, to push these ideas to children. Yeah. And then to have policies in place or informal practices in place, which is to allow that child to socially transition without necessarily even talking to the parents about it. This is really quite sinister stuff. This isn't a, you know, this isn't um, uh, hypothetical. This is something which has been very clear. You also pair that with the sex education um, fiasco, which has been going on. It's kind of around the same time back in March, Rishi Sunat said, we're going to have um, this review into what's been going on in mm. terms of sex education because, again, there'd been these revelations about quite young children being shown materials which their parents were not allowed to look at, often on kind of trumped-up intellectual property grounds, <laughs> which no one really bought, um, around some quite adult stuff. Yeah. You know, we could, we're talking about masturbation, we're talking about fisting, things of this nature. Mm. I feel gross even talking about on this podcast. But it's still the sort yeah. of thing where this is something that parents were naturally very concerned about. That review um seems like it will never see the light of day Gillian keegan the education secretary has said that um they will potentially talk about the recommendations or something but not the kind of meat of the particular um review that has taken place so again you have this irony as joanna williams talked about on spike this week in her column of this issue of parents being really concerned about what is going on behind their backs in schools this culture of secrecy which has crept in in the name of inclusion but still i think completely phony and yet the response is more caginess from from the government. And what I really don't understand about it, or I suppose I do understand about it, but I think it's shameful, is Sunak does kind of know better. I mean, he's yeah. a bit he's 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 still he's refusing to pick a side more firmly, but I don't think he's a kind of natural wokester by any stretch of the imagination. I think he's I I believe the people who say that he's quite naturally kind of a bit more socially conservative than your average Tory MP, shall we say. Um, and I think, what is it that's stopping him from doing this? You, as Candice was saying, there's that kind of concern running up to an election, wanting to appeal to the kind of imagined median voter. 
the median voter is completely on board with yeah. ta taking this stuff on. So that doesn't really wash to me. You even think about the way in which, yes, you're going to upset Stonewall, but the Tory party upset Stonewall by breathing. There is yeah. no, there are never going to be one over to their particular kind of their perspective. Pink News are never going to write glowing op-eds about what the Tory party is doing in government in relation to this particular issue. And what I think it comes down to is the fact that his own party and his own cabinet, and this has been true for a very long time, mm. are as up to their eyeballs in this gender identity nonsense as any other party. They are the party that is responsible for bringing through potentially the changes to the Gender Recognition Act, which then got quashed. They are the party who have been pushing you know, from the back benches as strongly for this ban on supposed trans conversion therapy, which mm. would effectively negate any ability to talk to confused youngsters and try and suggest maybe another path is is better. Um, they have been, as we've seen with Gillian Keegan, who has said in an interview that she doesn't think 16 is too young to transition yeah. um, on the grounds that when she was 16, she had a she had a job and she was paying tax. And as Joanna was saying, it's not like having a Saturday job. It's actually much more serious, serious yes. and potentially irreversible. So I think it's shameful, but he's effectively throwing vulnerable young children under the bus for the sake of party management. Yeah. And that's if if that is all it comes down to, I think that is pretty striking. And, and to add to that list, you know, it was the Tories who brought in the kind of compulsory PSHE slash sex education that has led to schools to seek out all this outside advice as well. So they're totally to blame for it and they are not taking responsibility for cleaning it up. They're completely confused. I mean, it's not something you would expect of a conservative government, but it's I think it's just having quite a lax attitude to these things, not really managing properly. And I think the point that Tom made is such a good one. Why do people assume that the median voter is just wishy-washy, doesn't really have an opinion? Sometimes the mass view on something can be quite a strong opinion. Mm. I mean, it can be quite a definitive opinion. I mean, always trying to find the middle ground, that's not always possible and not desirable, actually. And, and in, these, in cases like these, you know, finding the middle ground, avoiding confrontation just leaves it open to the most extreme views yes, actually yes because they will assert themselves they've mm. got no problem doing it and tom do you think we can make any progress on this issue are they just not interested in um it seems like it. i mean i i did wonder whether um because rishi sunak doesn't really have much <laughs> to say for himself at the moment you know all of his other pledges are kind of going awry i mean yes people are primarily concerned about inflation and the questions of the border and so on There's, there are, there are bigger fish to fry but you did think perhaps naively mm. that this would be such an easy straightforward way yeah to do something which the vast majority of people see as an important issue and see as the tory party still just about as the, as the one party slightly more likely to do something about it but he still failed miserably but i think it does come down to the fact that throughout all this gender critical battle it has always been about people from outside the political class putting pressure on the political class to do something whether it's the gender critical feminists the kind of parents groups which are popping up to challenge some of these materials that's always been the story and i have a lot of faith in their ability to make mm. a difference given how much change has happened in even the past couple of years really and finally let's talk about this incident in peckham a video has gone viral essentially showing an asian shopkeeper allegedly manhandling um, a black woman and it's kind of been seized upon as a racist incident. So there have been protests outside the shop. Many of the sort of race equality charities have got involved. I mean, Tom, I mean, I know it's early days and it's probably a bit too early to say, we can't even say what happened really. Um, but, you know, what have you made of the reaction to it? Yeah, well, it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, there is this video which um, is naturally going to upset people. So you've got yeah. a, you know, a shopkeeper, an Asian gentleman, um, manhandling as you say a woman who's about 30 years old um 
it seemed like going on the reporting, this is somewhere between um, a bust up over a refund through to, as was alleged on the other side, a kind of case of shoplifting that she came in. She wanted a refund. She was denied it. The, uh, she was alleged to then try to basically just take what she felt she was owed. And then he tries to stop her from leaving. At one point, inputs is seen putting a hand around her throat. And that's going to put anyone's mm. nose out of joint. That's going to concern anyone. But at the same time, the question of what really went on here is never obvious from a bit of CCTV footage or from a bit of, um, you know, camera phone footage. Yeah. Very quickly, a very crude and simplistic racial narrative was imposed upon this, which I think we should take very seriously and be very concerned about, which is to say that this was, as you say, instantly a uh, racist incident um, without anyone stopping to wonder or check whether mm. or not there's any evidence to suggest racial animus pay- plays a role here rather than someone overreacting or reacting poorly yeah. to a particular situation. Um, it has also taken on a slightly a new grim dimension insofar as the the racial dynamics have become quite pronounced. A lot of the protests talking about, um, we don't do this to your your women, why do you do it to our women's signs left on, on the shutters of the shop, which hasn't been able to open for a number of days now, referring to them as parasitic merchants, constant talk about you people, i.e. South Asians, effectively running these businesses in our community. You're starting to see this kind of really grim identity politics being imposed upon it. And also this being done quite explicitly by not just race equality charities, but also various groups which kind of range from wannabe black nationalists to sort of identitarian groups. I mean, Ngozi Fulani, if anyone remembers her from the Lady Hussey um, microaggression scandal, was there addressing the crowd there. Forever Family, who people might remember from 2020, which is a slightly confusing group. No one really knows what it is actually that they do, but... um, gentlemen who walk around in kind of stab vests seemingly to kind of evoke a kind of black nationalist kind of paramilitary vibe who again were um out there making their presence felt it's taken on a pretty grim kind of racial tone and there has been this rush to judgment which i think takes us into a territory that we really don't want to go into something that happens in america which essentially based on the identity of the alleged perpetrator or the identity of the alleged victim no one stops to work out what actually happened. They just mm. impose this crude racial script on it and then let rip. And I think we're seeing that repeated here and we really don't want to see that start to become a feature of life in diverse modern Britain, as it were. Yeah, Candice, I wanted to ask you in particular about the sort of rush to judgment aspect. That has been quite worrying. Yes, yeah, I mean, what Tom said, I mean, all of it, totally, that's the way I see it. So, you know, it's, it's worrying because it's actually very dehumanising. You know, instead of seeing just human beings, people who could just be making terrible decisions in the heat of the moment, clashing personalities, just things that are quite ordinary. We see people playing out grand narratives, mm. grand racial narratives, grand political narratives. And there is something very particular to our social media age in which people do that. You know, obviously it's a, a big American phenomenon, as mm. Tom said. I mean, you look at the woman, the city bike Karen, yeah. and there was, oh my gosh, I mean, there was so much discussion about whether she was in the wrong or whether she was in the right. And no one could accept, you know, maybe on both sides, there was a bit of confusion, not understanding each other properly, a bit of bad temper. This is a woman who got upset at someone taking a bike that she'd hired. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, but the boys on the other side said, no, it was my bike and yeah. I was just recharging it. And, you know, we'll never know whether there was... One thing I objected to is people tried to make her either all good or all bad, yeah. or the boys all good or all bad. There was just no room for just nuance. You know what? People sometimes have really bad disagreements with each other and do stupid things and it's just as simple as that and and tom in terms of the sort of um the racial dynamic here i mean it, it's interesting you've had some people come out and say um 
particularly on Twitter and on videos and things like that, saying that, you know, white supremacy is to blame when really, you know, this is suddenly there's no white people involved as far as I can tell. No, exactly. And I think it's a reminder that uh, this identity politics, this victim politics, some of which is being pushed very explicitly by some of the campaigners in and around this case, uh, but also it's just sort of in the air, it's in the water, yeah. isn't it, at the moment, um, is such a big problem if you want to live in a genuinely kind of diverse society, if you will. Because this isn't just about by pushing a kind of politics of racial victimhood, by pushing a politics of racial division, by encouraging people to see every interaction, good, bad and in between, as an expression of some sort of racial dynamic, unconscious biases and so on. It's not just bad because it means white people occasionally have to feel uncomfortable or they're going to be accused of racism here or there and boohoo about that. It's really going to become a big problem in terms of creating or exacerbating pre-existing frictions between ethnic minority groups themselves. This is mm. one thing that often isn't really talked about in the question of race relations and anti-racism. But as um, Rakib Hassan, Spike Collins has made this point in another outlet about how when ethnic minorities have written a poll, so there was a Hope Not Hate report a couple of years ago, a plurality of them will say, as in more say than not, that um, the tensions between group between ethnic minorities is, is more stark than it is between ethnic minorities and white people for instance yeah. and that's something which again if we continue to push this politics of victimhood if we continue to push this idea that we all belong to these kinds of groups and that whenever some sort of incident happens we have to rally back to our side you're going to stoke up ethnic potentially ethnic conflicts i don't mm -hmm. mean that in a violent sense necessarily but certainly a lot of animosity as we've seen on the streets of south london this week um, which is not about what, which won't necessarily even involve white people. This isn't about yeah. tears for the white majority, and they're sorry a lot in in this. This is about the fact that the more you kind of balkanize society, the more the more tension you store up. And I just think it's so clear we're starting to go down that road, very much influenced by America. Yeah, um, and we need to stop because it is something which, as soon as you adopt that lens of society, it's very difficult to kind of push it away and go back to kind of seeing yourselves as as citizens again. If you see what I mean. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.